Well, last week uh, we were in Acts three one to ten, and uh, what we're what we're studying now are just kind of what I would call the opening salvos in the invasion of the kingdom of Jesus, and and the mission of the church. These are the the first kind of uh, efforts post Pentecost, and uh, last week we saw Peter and John. Uh, on their way to the temple at the afternoon hour of prayer as they were about to enter into the temple courts through what was known as the beautiful gate. And they encountered a man there who had been lame since birth. Reading ahead in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, we learn that this man was over 40 years old. And so we can surmise that he had been laying and begging at this gate for most of those years. Uh, He asked Peter and John for alms. Uh, Peter responded, Uh, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. And he took him by the hand and pulled him to a standing position and said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this man stood for the first time in over 40 years of his life. The man was healed immediately. His feet and ankles are instantaneously strengthened. This man who had never walked a day in his life, who had never learned how to walk, went walking and leaping, it says, and praising God. He then accompanied Peter and John into the temple courts where the crowd recognized him as that beggar at the gate. And they were filled, Luke tells us, with wonder and amazement. We're going to pick up that story today in... Luke, uh, or Acts 3, 11 through 4, 4. Would you stand with me and let's read our text together. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man the perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled." Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet 
shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. You may be seated. The first thing we're told in this passage is that that lame man clung to Peter and John. Notice verse 11. He clung. He clung. Intriguing, isn't it? This this man had experienced a miraculous healing that could only have occurred by the power of God. Uh, three times in five verses, Luke uses the word walk or walking to describe this man who had never before walked. Twice he tells us that this man whose legs had never allowed him even to stand was now leaping. And yet, here in verse 11, we find him seemingly moments later clinging to the two apostles. And and we really ought to pause just momentarily and ask why. Uh, He's been walking, been leaping, demonstrating strength and balance and coordination, all those things we talked about last week. He didn't need Peter and John for that anymore. So why is he clinging to them? John Stott infers that the man held on to Peter and John, cured but still clinging and not yet confident. Cured but still clinging and not yet confident. But isn't that just a snapshot of each of us in our relationships with God? God's performed a miracle of his power and grace, forgiving us all of our sin, raising us from death to eternal and abundant life, giving us a a new name, a new identity, a new future, and a hope, and yet we not fully understanding our new condition, not really believing that we were actually miraculously, immediately, completely saved when we trusted in Christ, still depending on other people, and lesser things for our sense of confidence before God, still believing that our salvation in the long run depends on them and not on the Lord. It's possible that he was fearful that this was a just a momentary miracle that would soon pass and he'd be back to being lame again. Or maybe he clung to them out of sheer gratitude and love. You think about it, when someone does something for you, so great, so magnanimous, so generous, something you know you could never do for yourself, you kind of want to stay close to them, don't you? 
And still he needed to step into the fullness of his healing. He needed to step into the fullness of his newfound freedom. He needed uh, to experience the fullness of his new relationship, transformed relationship with God. Just like all of us. Just like all of us. Notice that the people were utterly astounded. Utterly astounded. Last week we read in verses 9 and 10, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And now in verse 11, Luke adds, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And again, we're reminded that that everyone who had passed through that gate in at least the previous 30 years recognized this man because he was laid there, verse 2 tells us, daily. He was always there. He was a part of the landscape. His very absence now from where he had always been would have captured some people's attention. They would have noticed that there was an open space that didn't used to be there. His presence with them now in the temple amazed them, utterly astounded them, filled them with wonder. What happened to this guy? And again, I want us to pause here for a moment in order to observe an essential principle together. Witnessing a a real miracle, not just a phony one, not just a television one, a real miracle will nearly always elicit wonder and amazement. Seeing the results of a miracle may leave us, as it left them, utterly astounded. But with the exception of the miracle of the new birth itself, miracles by themselves are not effective to save anyone. We need to understand that today. Miracles must always be accompanied by a clear proclamation of the gospel. Paul wrote to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Miracles must always be accompanied by a clear proclamation of the gospel. So it's to that clear communication of the gospel that Peter now turns. Notice with me, first of all, that Peter shaped his message for Jewish ears. Peter saw it. Uh, He addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? See that? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? 
Everything about Peter's sermon reflects a Jewish audience. Beginning with his open words, translated in the ESV, men of Israel. Men of Israel. A literal translation is men, Israelites. He's addressing the men. But through them, he's addressing entire families, isn't he? And and in effect, the entire nation. And he offers a disclaimer. Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? Don't focus on us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. It seems to be human nature, doesn't it? When God works in unexpected ways through certain people for us to want to glorify them, to elevate them, even to venerate them. In fact, when we come to Acts 14, we're going to read of of God working the very same miracle, different people, same miracle in the city of Lystra for another lame man who had never walked. And on that occasion, Luke records that the people of the city wanted to sacrifice bulls to honor Paul and Barnabas, believing that they were the incarnation of the gods. And on that occasion, Paul went to great lengths to give a disclaimer similar to Peter's, and still the people wanted to offer sacrifices to them. They always want to elevate the messenger. Peter was succinct and clear, not our power, not our piety. We're we're not all that. The power isn't ours. We're not so great. We're just guys. But the power of God and God alone has healed this man. And he goes on, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his servant Jesus Notice verse 13, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. There, there is not another occasion in the entirety of the New Testament where we find this phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Peter is speaking to his Jewish brothers. And to that, Peter adds, the God of our fathers, our ancestors, those who we have known, those who went before us. He's making a distinct appeal to their Jewish identity, their Jewish heritage. And at the same time, he's identifying personally with them. What they're witnessing wants them to understand is completely consistent and in complete continuity with who God is, who God has always been, and who they are as the descendants of the patriarchs. Their God, the God of their fathers, is the one who has glorified his servant Jesus. This is the starting point in Peter's explanation of what has taken place with this man. This is the essential understanding In fact, in order to understand what's happened to this man, how it happened, why it happened, how they should respond, they needed to wrap their heads and their hearts around this essential truth. Apart from God having glorified Jesus, Peter having commanded the man to rise and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is nonsensical. 
make any sense at all. Wishful thinking, maybe. Just a pipe dream. Fantasy. And what happened as a result to the man is unexplainable. So having established that connection, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus in what follows. Peter itemizes their sins as he identifies Jesus. Read on with me. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Now listen, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Their sins against Jesus and therefore against God were fourfold. You can almost see Peter putting his finger in their chest, can't you? As he's speaking these words, as he delivers this indictment in verses 13 to 15. You might ask, how could Peter indict all of the Jews for the sins of some of the Jews? How does he know that all the people he's talking to were part of that action? How can he say to each of them, you did this, you're guilty of this? And it's because of the nature of the old covenant that God had made with Israel, the old one. The sin of one became the sin of all. The guilt of one counted as the sin of all. And it's on this basis that he says first, you delivered Jesus over. The guilt of those who were involved in arresting Jesus and handing him over finally to Pontius Pilate became their sin as well. It it is accounted to them. Not only had they delivered him over, but Peter reminds them next that they denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate. The Roman procurator found no fault in Jesus. You remember that? He found no violation. He found nothing in Jesus of Nazareth deserving of punishment, deserving especially of death. But the Jews called him a blasphemer, a lawbreaker, and, and you'll, under, you'll appreciate this word, an insurrectionist. Third, Peter says, you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What kind of exchange was that? What were you thinking? They condemned Jesus and insisted that Barabbas, a known thug with a long rap sheet, a murderer and a true insurrectionist, be released instead. And fourth and finally, Peter's indictment said, you killed the author of life. 
whom God then raised from the dead. God had to clean up the mess you made. God raised him from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. The resurrection isn't a mere theory. It's a historical fact. We are eyewitnesses. So he itemizes their sins. But in so doing, he also clearly identifies for them the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice in verse 6 that he commanded the lame man to stand up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God for whom all Israel had been waiting and longing. In verse 13, Peter identifies Jesus as God's servant borrowing unmistakably uh, or unmistakable messianic language from the prophet Isaiah in chapters 52 and 53 about the one who would suffer and die for the sins of the people, but who God would ultimately raise to life and glorify. They thought that Jesus' death was God's just judgment on a blasphemer, one who claimed to be God. What they had apparently missed and failed to realize is that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Going on to verse 14, Jesus is the holy and righteous one, the one who was tempted in every way we are and yet without sin. The spotless, unblemished Lamb of God who became the full and final sacrifice for all of our sin. In verse 15, he's the author, the pioneer, the creator of life. How ironic, how tragic, how horrifying, what a cosmic contrast that they killed the author of life the incarnate God. And then God not only raised him, but exalted him, glorified him, enthroned him, gave to him the name that is above every name. See, Peter's indictment for those who were paying attention would have had the effect of saying to them, you're not only on the wrong side of history, You who think of yourselves as the people of God are on the wrong side of God himself. The message was unmistakable and it left them both speechless and defenseless. And so Peter invites them to repent, promising them a threefold blessing for their repentance. Picking it up at verse 16, And his name by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Here here in verse 16, Peter reframes the issue at hand at the heart of the repentance to which he's going to call them. The heart of repentance, the heart of the repentance to which he calls us is faith the matter of personal faith in the name of Jesus. His his name 
is more than just a collection of letters that phonetically produces a word. His name implies all of the fullness of all that he is, all that he has done, all that he will do, all of his power, all of his authority, all of his majesty. And Peter wants them to be clear on the fact that it was faith in and through the name of Jesus that gave this man perfect health. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now notice that that Peter graciously allows that their sins were committed in ignorance. And there was provision in the Old Testament law for violations, for sins, transgressions that were committed in ignorance. And, And Peter widens the circle that says not only did you commit these sins in ignorance, but also your chief priests and scribes did the same. But he wants them to understand the healing of the lame man for what it was. A sign that God has fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets that the Christ would suffer. And this reality they had rejected. In fact, this reality, many Jews, most Jews, reject to this day. And their rejection of that reality had led them to miss entirely the Messiah when he came in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Messiah, in their minds, wasn't supposed to suffer. He was, he was to conquer He was to triumph. So to repent means to change your mind and then to change your behavior accordingly. And when they would do that, he told them three blessings from God would come their way. First of all, their sins would be blotted out, entirely scrubbed, wiped away, as if they had never sinned. And that's that's really the essence of what Paul describes as justification. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Secondly, he says times of refreshing would come from the Lord. And Peter doesn't specify exactly what he had in mind by times of refreshing, but consider this. Freedom from the condemnation of sin. To know that God will never remember your sins. He he won't bring them up ever again. He will never leverage your sins against you. The abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, the abundant life that Jesus came to give, hope for eternity, times of refreshing. 
fellowship with other believers, times of refreshing. And then third, he says, God will send Jesus Christ at the time of restoration promised by the prophets. Maybe a reference to the rapture, but it seems to me from the language Peter employs here that it may instead be looking further down the road and be a reference to the millennial kingdom of Christ that he will establish when he comes again to earth in the second coming, the end of the tribulation period. Forgiveness of sins, times of refreshing, being ready for Christ when he comes again. And then Peter reminded them of who they were. And again, he's he's framing this entire message for, for Jewish ears. And he, he reminds them of who they are by pointing to the prophets beginning now with Moses. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 18 that, that, that God told Moses that, that he would raise up another prophet like him, similar to him, from among the people, and to whom, and to him they must listen or be destroyed. And that prophet was Jesus. God's words through Moses are recorded in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. And there God said regarding the prophet like Moses, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Oops. Oops. And Peter then broadens the picture by pointing to all the prophets beginning as far back as Samuel, and that's reaching back, who prophesied the events of the days in which they were now living. And he wants them to understand that they are the direct descendants of every prophet who ever pointed forward to the coming of Messiah and the events of the days in which they were now living. And this this just had to have added to their growing realization, their, their, their growing angst regarding their personal accountability for having rejected God's Messiah. And finally, he points all the way back, further back than Samuel, to the patriarch Abraham and tells them that they are also the sons of the covenant that God made with their fathers through Abraham, promising in your offspring shall all the families, all the families of the earth be blessed. 
God has always been a missionary God. He expected Israel to be a missionary people just as he expects the church to be a missionary church. Offspring here, as in Genesis, is singular. One offspring, one descendant. And in that one and through that one, God would bless all of the families of the earth, not just Israel. So Peter adds, God sent his servant, the Messiah, to you first. And again, echoing Paul's words in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God sent his servant, the Messiah, to you first, but not exclusively, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Well, the Jewish leaders were greatly annoyed. Seems like they're always annoyed, doesn't it? Acts 4, 1-2, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Satan has never been able to tolerate the proclamation of the gospel, the message of Jesus crucified and risen, raised by the power of God. Who were the Sadducees? Well, they were another Jewish sect similar to the Pharisees. But unlike the Pharisees, they, they cultivated a cozy relationship with the Romans. They, uh, they, they kissed up, someone might say, to the Romans to preserve their own political power. So they, they were the real religious and political elite to a degree even greater than the Pharisees. And one of the distinctives of their beliefs is that they didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead at all, which is why they were so sad, you see. And they couldn't allow the apostles to go on preaching that Jesus had been physically raised from the dead. And so Peter and John were arrested. They arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, where it was already evening. You might say, well, that's a kind of a sad ending to a pretty good day. But that's not where it ends. Verse 4 tells us that 5,000 men believed the message of the gospel. Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 men believed the message of the gospel, were added, were baptized and added to the church, and now 5,000 more. But notice with me that this number represents only the men, only the heads of households, only Husbands and fathers, it doesn't include any women or children who happened to be there that day. And, and even through a confrontational proclamation of, ev- of even the hard truths of the gospel that called people to profound awareness of their sin, faith took root. Lives were changed. The church continued to grow. So if there were 3,000 men that believed on the day of Pentecost, how, how, how many were in their families? 
If there were 5,000 men who believed on this day, how many were in their families? The church continued to grow. Before I wrap this up, I just want to share with you five ways that the no longer lame man is just like you. Five ways that the no longer lame man is just like you. First of all, he was born lame. You and I were born into Adam's race, born in sin, separated from God. David said, surely I was conceived in iniquity, sinful from birth. We have a lameness that's of a spiritual nature. Secondly, he was destitute. This man had nothing. He he was completely dependent on the kindness and the generosity of others. He had nothing to give to anyone. He was only a receiver. And that's the way the Bible portrays us in our sin. That we owed a debt so large, so burdensome, that we could never have paid it ourselves. And in response, Jesus Christ died a death that he didn't deserve to pay a debt that he didn't owe a debt that we could never have paid in a thousand lifetimes. You and I, apart from Christ, are spiritually destitute. Bible just, or theologians call that depravity. Our utter, utter inability to please God on our own. Our absolute need for a Savior. Third, this man was separated from the presence of God. He had spent his entire life laying outside the temple, the the symbolic dwelling place of God among his people, without any prospect or hope of ever entering in, not simply because he couldn't walk, but because his disability would have barred him from entering in from the get-go. And in the same way, it's our sin that separates us forever from the Holy God unless someone acts to change our condition. Fourth, he was healed immediately and completely and undeservedly by faith in the name. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, in the name of Jesus Christ, in who he is, what he has accomplished for us through the cross, transferring our trust from whatever else we've been trusting in to Him. He saves us immediately. He saves us completely, though we are undeserving sinners. We're saved by grace through faith, the grace of God, not the goodness of man, the grace of God through faith in the name of Jesus, the faith that comes Paul says, through Jesus, or Peter says, through Jesus Christ. 
And how important is that distinction? Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It, meaning the faith that saves us, is the gift of God. In other words, <laughs> the faith that saves us is not something that's inherent to us. It's, it's not something we self-generate. Unless he gives us the gift that leads to faith, we're never going to be saved. And finally, he gave God all the praise. He went walking, leaping, praising God. He entered in with Peter and John to the temple, and there again, walking, leaping, praising God, worshiping him. You can picture a, today's media, right? The guy's healed. It's an amazing healing. They put a camera in his face. What are you going to do now? I'm going to go to Disneyland. Not this guy. Not this guy. He didn't credit or praise Peter or John or in some way credit himself with what had happened to him. Instead, he said, I'm going into the temple with my people to give praise and thanks to the God who has healed me. The God who has made all the difference in my life. What about you today? Do you stand guilty of having rejected Christ? Have you missed it? Was it a result of your ignorance that you just didn't know? Well, now you know. And now you're accountable. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in him and him alone? Are you celebrating your healing? Are you stepping into the freedom of the children of God? For those of you who who do know Christ, who, who have trusted in him, are you living in freedom? Real freedom? Really? Let's pray. Lord, for those here today who have not trusted in you, who who perhaps have said, I don't need Jesus. That's just a theory. You may have, they may have uh, understood him as a teacher, a rabbi, a prominent religious leader and never understood him as the savior that he came to be. Lord, I prayed that today might be the day that you grant them that gift of faith that leads to life, that they would be saved from eternal condemnation. For those of us today who are trusting in Christ, Lord, would you teach us what it means to walk and to leap and to praise you, to live in the complete freedom and joy of our salvation. Lord, teach us to lean into your name, to your authority, your power, 
your ability to deliver us not just once, but every day from the oppression of sin. We look to you, Lord, and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.